Hi everyone, how are you doing? My name's Gareth Duffin and welcome to Know Your Shift, a podcast where we explore the challenges, opportunities and impact of change in all of our lives. Change can be unsettling and often difficult to navigate, but it's also a part of growth and progress. On this show, we'll be talking to experts, business leaders and everyday people about their experiences with change and how they've overcome obstacles to embrace it. Whether you're looking for inspiration, practical tips or just a fresh perspective on change, we get actionable advice. So let's dive into the world of change, embrace the unknown, and help you to change your direction. Hi, Joe. Thanks very much for joining me on the podcast today. Um, We always start with the same first question. So what is the hardest change that's happened to you in your life? Morning, Gareth. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Uh, The hardest change that's happened in my life, I mean, you've you've had previous guests who've had some very big challenges, personal challenges, which I I don't compete with. But um, if I I keep it to a professional example, um, I think the hardest challenge that I had to face other than entering the workforce for the first time as a young 16-year-old, I'd have to say was was my current role at AXA. So I, I joined AXA five years ago and... My background was very much an operational background. I've been in retail for for many years uh, before moving into the student accommodation industry. Um, And moving from very operations-based business into an investment environment, um, I probably under-egged how much much of a difference there was between between the two environments. So it really took me six months to to get my feet under the table and I really did question myself in terms of um, can I do this is this the right move for me have I made the, the best move for my career or should I have stayed in, in, in what I know um, and I'm happy to elaborate further on but I think that's the, that's the biggest move for me was the, the, the change from operational to investment management so what were the biggest differences that you sort of found when you moved on to the investment side <laughs> So I went into into AXA, and uh, I, you know, even from the the interview stage, I'd I'd wondered why they'd want someone with my profile, very operations based, um, roll your sleeves up, um, get involved in turnarounds, um, right through to the you know the the, the granularity of P and Ls, etc. Um, so then move into an investment environment where. I was surrounded by super smart bods, very corporate in ties at the time. It's, it's relaxed since then, thankfully. <laughs> um, but I, I felt very overwhelmed. It was almost like they were talking a different language. You know, they were talking about IRRs and returns on investments and yields, which the, the, the kind of jargon that you never heard really in, in student accommodation unless you were in the investment side. I was purely operational and had a hand in the developments uh, in terms of specification of product, et cetera, university norms agreements, those types of things. So to suddenly move into an investment environment, I felt like a fish out of water. And I was like, this is a language that I don't currently speak. And I've always had the philosophy when I've, when I've looked at roles and, and the 80-20 rule of if I can do 80% of it, I'll go for it. And I can learn 20% on the job. Um, and I suddenly started questioning, you know, can I do 80% of this or not? Um, and AXA, you know, to their credit, um, they were, they were building a team of what they called sector specialists across the, the alternative space. And they, they knew that they had a, a need for people that could actually do the operational stuff. They were very strong at the asset management piece and the investment piece. But they needed someone that could actually, A, 
know the sector, B, know the players, developers, operators, etc., but also to be able to, to, to look at P&Ls and, 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 and underwrites and, and really interrogate them. Um, so it wasn't until I started going through my first investment committees and, and discussions with the various teams across the different countries on opportunities that I started to sort of feel a bit more comfortable and, and say, well, actually, I can add value to this business because nobody else knows what I know. Um, in this business and and therefore I can add, add that value and and slowly but surely like I said six months where I was questioning should I leave turned into actually no I can make a difference here and I can really add value and, and that was a, a real tough period when I was asking myself a lot of questions about you know, myself so um, thankfully five years on I'm still here and uh, hopefully still adding value to the business. <laughs> I once, um, an investor once said to me in a, in a conversation that, um, you know, they were, they'd gone through asset management and they were, you know, portfolio manager and, you know, in their roles and they described, um, asset management as being the hard route to get to go up in a business and operations being the easy route and I always apart from being <laughs> insulted by that by being uh, <laughs> you know by having a background in, in firmly in operations um I I hope you know you've seen both sides you can tell me whether that's true or not um I would say that the, the operations piece well it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough one to answer because there's aspects of both sides that are, that are tricky. I think the operational piece, you have to have a certain mindset and understanding and, and, and almost a, a natural gift for that piece because it is so fast moving, it's unpredictable, it changes year on year, there's different challenges, albeit that you think that the academic year falls into traditional patterns of move in, check in, then you've got the turnaround, you've got your your events and what have you throughout the year. But there's so many different things, and you'll know yourself that some of the challenges that you face, such as which city will it be this year that will struggle and have a problem? You know, many years ago, I remember it was Newcastle that was oversupplied and therefore very tricky to fill. Then it was Exeter, it was London. You know, each year you just don't know which city is going to be unpredictable. So you're always on, on the hop and on you know, trying to keep on your toes to make sure that you can react quickly enough or even predict where the potential problems and challenges could lie. On the asset management piece, I think it's a bit more predictable because you're dealing with the real estate more than the operations. The asset manager themselves is looking to the property manager and the operators to, to really do that day-to-day -day and just deliver the numbers and the NOI and keep the costs low. From an asset management piece, you're more worried about uh, the ESG piece, the the age and condition of the buildings, the valuations, um, and making sure that you know you're you're hitting your fund targets and keeping the investors happy and the clients happy. So they're, they're, they're different challenges. Uh, I wouldn't say one's harder than the other, but on the operational side, you're definitely more reactive, whereas it's more planned. I think on the on the asset management side. So going back a little bit, you started your career in retail. I did. Yes, why, what, what, many why moons did, ago. What, why did you, Why did you choose retail as as a career, or did you fall into it? I fell into it. Retail chose me. So I remember <laughs> as a as a sixteen year old. As soon as I hit sixteen, I, was, I wanted to to get out and work and and earn some money because I was probably looking to buy my first car. I think it was, 
Um, and I wanted to have some money ready for when I hit 17 and could try and pass my test straight away. Um, so I started at, at BHS, now now gone, unfortunately, but as a Christmas temp, working in the Christmas department um, in my local store. Um, and I found that I really enjoyed it um, and that I think I was pretty good at it. And I was one of the lucky few that was asked to stay on after the Christmas period um, for a permanent role. Uh, and I quickly became a, a supervisor um, and, and actually they invited me to to, to enrol in their, their fast track management scheme, which was a, a one-year scheme um, to obviously become a manager in retail. And I really enjoyed it. And I was going through GCSEs and then A-levels at the time. And, and I was there actually for must be six years because I enjoyed it that much and I learned so much. Um, and I think part of the psyche for me, forgetting the, you know, whether it was retail or not, was I knew that, um, and, and this has been a broader theme in, in my, my early career life, was that I'd seen, you know, when I got to the university stage and I was still working at BHS part-time whilst going to uni, I... I looked at my friends and they're very much divided into two groups. Those that went to university and, and didn't work and very different environment today because you didn't have the fees, et cetera, um, versus those that um, chose a career and didn't go to university. And, you know, the stories that you hear when they go for interviews, et cetera, they were getting knocked back because they didn't have the necessary experience or they had the qualifications, sorry, the qualifications and no experience, or they had experience but no qualifications. And I'd, I'd always looked and said, well, I don't want to be in that position. If I go for an interview, I want to be knocked back because of the answers that I give or whether I'm not a, the right cultural fit, for example. So I, 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 stuck in, I stuck with retail just because I enjoyed it and it was offering me fresh challenges. Uh, and as I say, I spent, I spent six years there before then moving into big box. And you know, one of the, the big things for my career is that I look at my CV and say, where are the gaps? How can I fill those gaps? What strings can I add to my bow to, to make me more employable and a great all-rounder? And for me, it was, you know, whether it's managing more people, managing more turnover, managing uh, multi-sites rather than single sites, it was always, you know, the next move was calculated to a degree in terms of how do I, how do I present myself um, in a more positive way. So that's really been a theme throughout my career to date. Um, how can I add more bits? And, you know, that's got me to where I am today, where there's not many people that have got that, what I class as a strong, I think of as a strong operational background. I've been being a student since 2011. Um, now, with couple that with the investment asset management side, I think sort of hopefully gives me a, a good all-round package that when I do look for new opportunities or, or when new opportunities arise and I'm approached, I'm thought of, you know, as, well, actually, that's quite a hard position to, to recruit for. This is the person that you need. And, you know, for me, it's just all about, always about adding more and more experience and, and like I said, turnover, people, and different parts to, to that CV to make it as strong as possible. You talked about um, joining the student accommodation industry back in 2011, which, you know, I, I keep thinking that, that that was a long, long time ago. I mean, it was it was only really <laughs> 12 years ago. Um, 
but and, and that makes me laugh i always think of i joined student accommodation in 2014 and i always think of anything before then as as the dark ages um <laughs> but uh so so 2011 you joined unite that i imagine student accommodation is a bit different to, to what it is now what was it like back then joining unite at you know in again it sounds like a long time ago but back in 2011 <laughs> well you know a bit like retail when i first started out I, I fell into student it wasn't something i was looking for i'd literally moved back uh, having been away and lived in australia for eight years in and working in a totally different industry in the gaming industry um which actually got me into the property and real estate sector for the first time uh, and i'd moved back in the may and started sending my cv out um and a recruiter that i'd known prior to going to Australia and who placed me in a couple of, of positions, um, instantly got in touch with me and said, is that the same Joe that, that we spoke to, you know, we've, we placed twice eight years ago and, uh, yes. And then before I knew it, he said, well, we've got this great role. You've got great skills in terms of what they're looking for from, a you know, they're looking, if I'm sure you know this very well, that traditionally, you know, when, when you're recruiting for, for student accommodation, you, you would go to the hospitality sector, hotel sector, for those types of people with ex that type of experience. And I went for an interview and got through. And in the July, I started at, at Unite, which, you know, the number one still is the number one in the UK in terms of uh, number of beds and you know, big corporate based in Bristol, um, but with a, with a London office and, um, I was part of a, a new team that was recruited because London wasn't really working um, as it should for them. And they, they'd recruited three or four of us to to really focus on that area um, and, and bring it up to the standard of the rest of the business. Um, and, you know, I think if you, if you compare student now to then, the principles are still the same. You've still got to fill the building, still to keep the customers happy and the students happy. But... The, the physical aspects of the buildings themselves have changed dramatically. I think pretty much most of the stock that was around there, apart from university stock, was was all built to the same sort of standard, very much sort of middle of the road. Um, you could argue, you know, doctor surgeries when you walked into the reception area, very much white box environments. If, if you fast forward to today, you've got a real distinction between the, the premium end the middle and then the affordable end um, and the services that go along with that and you know the, the increased focus on on well-being and um, mental health etc but also just the specification has come on a million miles from the the wooden or metal chairs that you would have had to sofas and cinema rooms and podcast rooms as we were talking about earlier you know that was never Never a priority. It was just get it. Get it was all about density. Get as many rooms in as possible. Tiny little common room, uh, and then a, a reception desk that was sort of four foot high with someone's head popping over the top. Uh, it's very very different now. Now it's you know student accommodation has become an extension of the university. It's part of that university experience. It's no longer just you need somewhere to to sleep and to store your things. It's very much an education environment. You see more and more. Um, universities that are partnering with developers and operators to have a, a mixed classroom and place to stay and live um, buildings, um, which benefits both 
university and and the students as well as the operators um so there's 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 a lot more collaboration between universities and and operators and, and assets um so it, it's just it's just chalk and cheese but obviously the the basic principles of, of pbsa still live on we still need to get bums in beds or heads in beds as they say and um you spent time at both collegiate and gsa during or what I describe as their formative years. Um, yes. They, and during incredible periods of change, you know, and change is the theme of this podcast. So um, that must have been, um, you know, during both roles, quite a quite a fast-paced environment, I can imagine, as they were, um, you know, increasing in operations and size. So, um, yeah. yeah, talk to me about that period as to, you know, growing those businesses as as you were part of. It was really interesting and, and it touches on the theme I said earlier about looking at my CV and how can I improve myself in terms of experience and adding more strings to the boat. The move to, to collegiate um, was driven mainly because it was a third-party operator, so it didn't own its own assets like Unite did. Um, so you were exposed, you know, the role that I had, you were exposed to different investors and different clients, which I'd not had before because it was purely operational at, at Unite and very much it was the building and the staff and people within Unite. But very rarely, unless there was a tour of investors, did you really interact with them. Um, with Collegiate, you're, you know, you're dealing with them off the bat straight away. Um, and often... Uh, smaller investors, so not the, the GICs and black signs of this world, but smaller independent investors and high net worth individuals who'd never been in the sector uh, and didn't understand students. So they were relying on your knowledge and experience to, to guide them in terms of what's the right type of product. Uh, is the asset going to be in the right location? What's the price points, et cetera, et cetera. And the room mix studios versus, versus clusters. Um, so it was, that, that opened up a whole new world for me. Um, you know, Eri, the CEO at the time, was was fantastic for, for for me in terms of almost acting as a mentor, and I've learned so much from him. He'd broken away from CRM where he he was at previously, and said, "I'm gone alone." And again, that was going into the more premium end of the market. So again, a product that I hadn't necessarily worked with at Unite um, at the time, uh, and. Again, you know, going through that whole finding the right suppliers, um, what's the right mix? How do we make sure that it's specced to be able to get the pricing and the rental levels that the, the investor is, is expecting? So that was a, a real journey, and they were going through a massive period of growth. Um, the, the move to, to GSA really caught my eye because for two reasons. One, uh, even though it was, a, it was effectively a startup, um, the team I went in, went into there that I was a part of, if you put our collective years of experience in PSA together, it was probably 100 years of experience because a lot of the people that, or quite a few of the people that I'd worked with at Unite were actually part of GSA because Nick Porter obviously founded Unite and then sold out and moved to set up his own business. And what attracted me there was, A, the people. So, again, you don't have that initial I don't know anybody when I start a new role. It's going to take me time to get my feet on the table and settle in and establish credibility, etc. Some of those barriers were taken away because I knew a lot of the people that worked there and, and they were good people and, and, you know, really experienced. And then the second piece for me was 
I I love languages and I love to learn and speak languages as, as, as much as I can. And GSA wanted to go global. The dream was 250,000 beds by 2025. And I bought into that and I thought I could use my languages. And I've gone in uh, as, as head of operations for Europe originally. Um, and literally they had zero beds when I joined. You know, by the end of the year, I joined in the September. By the end of the year, we'd, we bought a portfolio in uh, in Germany, we bought um, a portfolio in, in the UK, student housing company. And then the following year, we were buying in Spain. We were developing from scratch in Dublin. Um, so, again, it was it was giving me exposure to something outside of the UK, which which I was fascinated by and really wanted to get involved in and had you know, a, a really good time there. And then moved from once we got to some scale, I think we got to about 30,000 beds pretty quickly with another 20,000 under development. Um, I moved into the, the commercial operations role, um, which was dealing with uh, nominations agreements for the first time. You know, so I think we were the first to get a nominations agreement in Dublin with Trinity University and RCSI, for example. Um, but because I had quite a bit of experience in the development piece and the specification of, of assets I'm, and going into these new markets, my role changed into this commercial ops for um, new market entry and and, um, and product development within those markets because what we realised quickly going into these European markets was that you can't just pick up the UK model and, and plonk it into Spain, for example, or Germany. Very different culturally, very different expectations, you know, catered versus non-catered, studios versus clusters, you know, the types of common spaces, et cetera. So... I was really fascinated by that and, and really enjoyed looking at how we can get into new markets and setting out the strategy for those new markets as GSA continued to grow. And um, what you said about, obviously, you know, looking back at your career, particularly looking at the student accommodation, and I think you look after some residential now as well, if I'm right. Um, yes. So looking at your career, you know, it's gone in, in my opinion, you tell me if I'm wrong, really logical steps. You know, so you, like you say, you've added skills, you've added different things to your, you know, your your skills and your experience. But you said in one of the previous answers, and I didn't know this about you, that you'd spent time in Australia in the gaming industry. So that feels like you know, retail, right. student accommodation, gaming in the middle. Talk to me about that. <laughs> yeah, so um, I I moved to Australia in, in 2004, uh, I followed followed my heart. I met an Australian girl over here who was on secondment um, for eighteen months, and I knew the time would come that she would have to go. Um, but you don't look that far ahead because you never think these things are going to last. But somehow it did, and uh, she, we had the uh, went to dinner one night, and then the chat came up, and she said, "I've got to go back. They've asked me to go back um, by the end of the year." And I said, oh, I'm right. Well, I knew it was coming, so fair enough. And, and I, I, I wasn't expecting her to then turn around and say, well, I want you to come with me. And I'd, it was this, this is the strangest point in my life because I'd always been quite methodical and not cautious, but I'd always think through decisions, a lot of decisions, you know, when it came to, to career and life, you know, it could be spontaneous in other areas, but certainly when it came to that, I was always quite pragmatic and wanted to think things through and make sure is it the right move. But 
when she asked me literally a millisecond, I said, yes. So either I must have really liked her or I really wanted to go to Australia. Um, but uh, so I, I said yes. And then it was a whirlwind. Um, at the time I was working in, um, in retail, um, in FMCG, you know, in fashion really department store uh, for Morley's Group Ely's in Wimbledon. And uh, I just, I've been there a year and a half, I think by the end of it and gave my notice. And I think in the space of five months, I'd, I'd sold everything I had, cars, etc., and uh, and moved to Australia in the February. And when I first got there, uh, there was no job, no nothing. It was just living with with her parents uh, until we found somewhere to rent. And I was looking for jobs. And I was like, well, what can I do? Um, do I want to stay in retail or not? And I just started talking to some recruiters, and one contacted me. And, and said, well, prior to that, I'd my then-girlfriend's dad worked in the, the plastics and packaging industry. Um, and he basically, they made um, all types of, you know, whether it was uh, plastic bags to uh, a big business in Australia, which was timber wrap. So it's a plastic covering that goes over the timber for the timber yards to then transport so it doesn't get wet. Um, and they printed it and, and and did all sorts. And I I just got a, a job with them as a as a truck driver for the first six months, just delivering um, this plastic packaging to different parts of of, of Victoria, because I was based in Melbourne. So it was great for me to sort of drive around and see all these different cities in a country that I'd never been to before. Um, but then quickly, the, the 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 MD he must have seen me one day where. Uh, a customer had come to the door and there was no one around um, and I'd managed to sell him um, more than what he wanted or something additional or I can't remember exactly what it was. And he approached me and said, what's your, what's your background? Uh, and so I gave him my CV and he said, oh, he goes, why are you driving a truck? And I was like, well, I needed something to pay the bills. <laughs> and uh, he, he, he gave me the role of sales and marketing manager straight away. Um, and I was there for a good couple of years uh, with them and again, learning the product, but still had the, it was more the, the skill set from retail in terms of being able to sell and negotiate and, 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 and understand um, that side of the business that, that really did me well. Plus, it got me into the marketing piece as well, which, which has helped me in later life. Um, slightly different because it was very much target driven. So I'd never sort of been in that real hardcore environment of we need to sell this and you, you'll get a bonus if you sell X amount. So quite uh, quite a challenging environment. But again, it was paying a lot better than the truck driving was and, and I could use some of the skills I had. So I did that for two years and then I got approached by a recruiter who said that there's a, there's a role going for um, a, a gaming industry. It was, it was called Tattersalls at the time uh, and it was focused on lotteries. Uh, and I said, what on earth could I be doing there? And they said, oh, no, hear me out. And they talked through the whole spiel and said that it's it's effectively um, what they call a state manager. So you're looking after, I think it was, well, originally a, you know, a few hundred stores. And I said, what am I going to be doing? Am I selling or what's the, what's the deal? And they said, no, 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 the product is there. It's a lottery product. And for those that don't know, the lottery is a massive business in, in, in Australia. It's huge. And 
unlike here where you see a, a lottery terminal in a supermarket or a, or a convenience store, there you have dedicated stores that 90% of them, all they sell is lottery products. That's it. Some of them will be in post offices, etc., but it's the major part of their business. So you've got real estate, you've got branding, you know, it's, it's, it's almost, it, it is its own chain of stores. Um, and I started there as a, as a state manager and effectively it was about trying to increase those sales to, um, it, it was a franchisee, franchisee based system. Um, so there was a lot of, there was a training team that I had and et cetera. And, and it was about how can we get people to spend more money on lottery? Um, as part of the you know the disposable income that they had, uh, and I was there for five years, and then after a couple of years, I moved into the retail ops manager role, which was the, the countrywide role, um, and that was where I got into real estate for the first time because that's where you're looking at new sites and should we open one here? Will it cannibalise others? What's the impact that it will have? Um, what's the the median income for the area? What's their disposable income? Um, I, I, the, the training department then fell under me and um, the legal team from the franchising aspect. So, you know, interviewing franchisees, making sure that they're the right fit for the business. Um, and, and it really sort of started getting into, into real estate. And then it was, you know, the, the, the marketing experience that I had came in handy because then I was working, we went through a massive rebrand before I left because um, there was a merger between some of the lottery companies across Australia um, so that got me into the, the creative side of things and the rebranding and there was you know, shop fitting, et cetera, and refurbs of, of these stores to, to get them up to the new branding. So that exposed me to a whole new area. Um, so I'm not sure, it, you know, to answer your question, whether it actually the gaming industry links into student at all, but certainly from a skill set perspective, it was adding more to what I've not done already, uh, giving me that experience, which I think now, you know, that's why I think it. I worked quite well in the student industry. If I, if I think of GSA, I worked very closely with the development team there to to, to spec out the um, the product in, in Dublin, for example, because that was ground up development. There was nothing you could buy; it just didn't exist. Um, so therefore, in terms of the, the whole branding piece, you know, GSA was a startup. We had a brand that was called Unionest at the time. Uh, launching that, what was you know, right from the colours to the fonts to the you know the signs on the building, etc., and, and and the web pages and all that, all that um, marketing good stuff. So I think you know I can I was able to draw on a lot of experiences from the past to then feed into the current role and. You know, hopefully that's progressively got me to where I am today. So talking about where you are today, so talk to me about your current role and, and what that involves. So my current role at AXA was, is, is, is a really interesting role. Um, like I said previously, that they were recruiting uh, for a team of what they called sector specialists in the alternative space. So they, you know, AXA's huge, um, huge investment asset management business and they were very successful, but um, they felt that um, they were very underweight in the alternative space. And when I say alternatives, I mean hotels, logistics, uh, student, um, healthcare, those types of, of industries. And what they didn't have, whilst they had very smart people, I was surrounded by smart people who could do the investment piece and, and pick out real estate 
and invest in it and, and hopefully get the returns that the clients want and the investors want. They needed the operational piece because they realized that real estate was becoming more operational. And they didn't have those types of people. If you think of people that you traditionally recruit for in, in investment and asset management, it was very much um, they might come from a JLL or a CBRE, you know, RICS qualified, MRICS. You know, I didn't have any of that. Um, and that sort of partly why it, tweaked, it sort of piqued my interest a little bit in terms of, you know, why would they want someone with my background? Um, but they, they they really wanted to grow in the in the resi and, and student space. So the benefit for me was twofold. One was to be able to bring my experience in PBSA because they didn't have any at the time. Um, but secondly, I for me, it was broadening my horizons outside of PBSA because you never know, you know, was PBSA going to last or not? You know, you, you have these questions of, Obviously, I think today we know that it's, it's, it's here for the long term, but back then it was still fairly fledgling. Um, and I wanted to, to grow again, you know, part of that CV building piece, learn a bit more um, about the resi space. And actually, you know, that's come to fruition because there's a lot of crossover between the residential space and the, and the student space. You know, in regulation, for example, when in Dublin they brought the, the caps in, you know, that affected both student and resi. So, Having that experience um, was really useful, um, and, I, and I, it was good for me to learn something new. So I felt I could give something to the business, whilst at the same time taking on a new sector. You know, and five years later, whilst I'm not an expert, you know, I've had exposure to so many different countries. The way the the residential and PBSA space works in those countries, the different investment criteria, metrics that you use, fundamentals that are different, the players how the, the market works, which, which you know, for me is, is, is priceless and I can use going forward um, in, in different, when different opportunities arise, having that knowledge of what's happening in one place potentially could um, help with um, what's happening in another country. So if you see that there seems to be a bit of a wave of regulation coming through, and I use that because it's quite topical at the moment in residential, um, since COVID especially, um, what's the impact of that type of residential uh, regulation that's been put in place? What's good? What's not so good? How can it be tweaked? How can we lobby other governments that are considering and have put out white papers around regulation, etc.? You know, that's really, really useful information to have to show examples and how it's impacted our, how our, our own um, AUM um, at AXA. So, for me, it was it was a really good opportunity. You know, a to use my languages. B again, that global piece and looking at different countries. You know, I've got exposure to Japan, Australia, the States, as well as Europe. So, seeing how those markets work are really, really intriguing. Um, and again, building up from scratch a, a PBSA. You know, we're up to now what thirty thousand beds plus across eight different countries from a standing start. You know, it's a fantastic effort from the business to do that in, in five years. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's proved invaluable and I'm really enjoying it. So you talked about different countries there, um, and regulation, which, which we might come on to a bit later, but in talking about residential investments, um, stacking it up against some of the other markets you're in and perhaps that you're looking at, is the UK still an attractive investment market for residential assets? At the moment, 
At the moment, yes, uh, there are caveats. But I think the, the one thing about the, the UK market is that it's still, when you compare it to, to Europe, is very unregulated in terms of no rental caps, for example. Yes, they brought some in for the, the social and affordable housing piece. But in terms of the, the free market, the, 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 the stuff, you know, the type of product that we would be buying, it's unregulated. So therefore, the, the beauty of UK residential is that you can offset, you know, with this high inflationary interest rate environment, you can offset some of those cost increases through rental increases. So therefore, actually, your bottom line isn't as affected. Whereas if I compare it to Spain, for example, where they brought in a 2% cap, which is moving to 3%, um, but your costs are rising at six, ten percent plus, or even you know even more when you look at the the utility side of things, it makes it a lot harder to to really you know improve that business and to deliver the the returns that that the that the investors want. Um, whereas in the UK, you know we've got a, a landmark asset in Pimlico, Dolphin Square, which is twelve hundred thirty four units and. Um, it's the largest, or it was the largest in Europe until the early 90s, I think. And it's, it's a fantastic historical estate, about 80 years old. Uh, and there we're, we're going through a, a huge um, CapEx program to, to really update everything. We're almost taking it back to core and shell. And uh, that, that's performing extremely well. I mean, obviously, zone one location helps uh, massively. But to be able to... Um, offset some of those cost increases through rental increases um, makes it a, you know, a really good proposition. Obviously, every country is suffering from a shortfall of supply. So the supply-demand imbalance is, is quite acute in, in most countries, as we see. Um, what's, what's adding to fuel to the fire is that the, the construction side is, is obviously suffering because of construction costs going you know, increasing hugely over the last few years since COVID uh, and then adding Brexit as well, where there's a shortage of labour as you don't have the Europeans that are coming over. So that, and, and we don't have those skills in, the, in that construction industry that's coming through from technical colleges or um, from, from universities or, you know, the youth training programmes as they were in the past. Um, so it's, it's, it's a real perfect storm where you're not building as much, there's, the population is increasing, and there's not enough stock. Something's got to happen, and obviously investors want to protect their returns, so rents do rise because there's a huge demand for, for, for housing. So it's a, it's a really good environment, I think, to, to, to invest in. I think the other thing as well is when you look at... Um, cap rates and yields across, across, if we keep it to Europe, the UK hasn't seen as much compression as other markets. You know, in France, you'd be buying at two, two and a half. In Paris, for example, um, in Spain, it was threes, early threes. And Germany, if you go to Munich, you're buying sub two. So when the, when the UK, you know, up until... Well, if we talk pre-COVID, was at four, four and a half. That looked very attractive in terms of returns for investors. So it was a great place to invest. And even today, it's still not as tight as as other markets are across Europe. So it's still a very good place to to invest. There's always that cloud over the horizon in terms of will regulation come. And I know that City Calm, for example, in London has been has been pushing for that. 
Um, but at the moment, it's, it's a great place to invest. The, the issue is making it stack up for new developments just because of the construction costs and therefore where are your rents going to be? And, you know, the affordability piece is, is massive um, at the moment in terms of you've, you've got a double-edged sword. You know, typically in the past, you'd look at affordability and say, okay, what's the disposable income? the ratio of disposable income and, and how much rent is being paid out of that and you'd have the equation whereas now you've got to put the rent plus your effectively your bills to say how much is someone actually spending that disposable income and that really skews the the, the ratio a lot um, just because of where utility rates are and obviously the ukraine war which has had a big impact so you've got to be really mindful that you're not pricing yourself out of the market because in the future if those you know hopefully when those utility rates come down and your rents are up here people might not um, necessarily be prepared to pay, pay those rents because they can go to the next newest shiniest um, building that's been built and yours is a few years old now and maybe not offering the same lifestyle or amenities that the, the new wave of product is, is bringing so you've got to be quite mindful about trying to make your asset as not future proof but future ready as possible and, and not really sweating the assets you know one phrase that i hate that's used a lot is sweating the assets unless you're a short-term investor who's looking to get out quick at the highest price i don't believe you should sweat the assets i think you need to have a you know axa is typically a, a long-term stable investor we're looking for the for the long term uh, in anything that we in most of the funds that we we look after um, and therefore, it's it's about that stability of income growth over time rather than a, a quick win, um, which is not sustainable. So, um, you know, for us, that affordability piece is key because it's becoming more and more expensive, as we know, in, everywhere uh, in life, from food through to utilities. So we need to be really mindful of that and making sure that we're not aiming at the premium end. And typically, you know, if I look at our portfolio now, we've got 22 billion euro of, of residential uh, across the globe and I would say that maybe five percent of that sits in the premium end maybe 25 percent is at the affordable end and we're focusing more and more on that now and then the rest is in the balance is in the middle um, you know an example of the affordable piece we've got a, a big portfolio two billion euro in in France which is about 20 percent below market rent levels um, we've just started a strategy in Australia with our first scheme in Sydney uh, that again will be around 20% below market rent, which is aimed specifically at key workers, uh, nurses, fire brigades, etc. I think the affordability piece is so strong, and if you if you're looking for somewhere to invest, which is probably as safe as you're going to get, it's that affordable end uh, of the spectrum um, because your your rents are starting so low. And there's always going to be a demand for it. Whereas with the premium, you've, you've got to be a bit careful and it's got to be really a trophy for the asset in the best location to be able to hope that the rents will still continue to grow going forward. So you mentioned Dolphin Square, which I think the press dubbed London's most notorious address at one point. Um, I'm keen to uh, yes, keen to know more about that deal without obviously <laughs> giving anything away. But, you know, what a property with such history as you say you know what what attracted um you guys to want to want to invest because you know there's a lot of investment yeah. needed i'm sure in that property absolutely uh, like i said it was 80 85 years old it was built in the uh, mid 30s um 
why do we choose Dolphin Square? I think we've been looking at BTR for a couple of years really strongly in the UK because it was the one sort of black hole that we had in our portfolio. Um, we were present in pretty much most of the other countries that we're already in in other sectors. Um, and we were looking at a lot of the new BTR stuff that was coming out of the ground. If you think of Manchester and Liverpool, you know, those were big, um, big towns, that uh, big cities that uh, were seeing a bit of investment. And it just wasn't quite sort of ticking ticking the boxes for us. And, and we were like, well, there's a lot of this product going up and, you know, that's, that's been borne out if you can. You can see now the amount of towers that have gone up. If you look at Nine Elms in London, for example, same thing's happening there. There's a lot of towers that are going up that are all the same. I think for us it was, again, looking forward, what are the USPs of the buildings that we, we want to buy? How are we going to make sure that they are future ready and still can deliver a return for investors going forward? Um, and then this opportunity came up at, at, for Dolphin Square and, you know, a huge estate, like I said, 1,234 apartments, seven and a half acre estate. But what would the what what attracted us to us to it? One zone one Pimlico. Okay, great. You're in central London. Perfect. That ticks that box. But number two was what you know. A big difference if you look at most of the other P, um, BTR schemes that are being built today is that you've got so much. So much space, um, amenity space that's dedicated. It's overspaced. If you were, you wouldn't build that today. Uh, you just couldn't afford to do it. You think it's got a three and a half acre garden right in the middle of it. It's, it's a, it is a square in itself. In fact, it used to be its own electoral borough up until recently because there was there were that many uh, inhabitants and residents there. But it it, it was just. A concentration of 1,200 units in one location, therefore making it easier to manage. You've got the amenity space, the huge garden, which no one else can replicate. It had um, a restaurant, a spa, a pool, you know, a swimming pool in London, in central London, very, very difficult and very difficult to find in Pimlico, um, let alone in, in the outer areas. And you, you just couldn't replicate that. You could not build that today. Uh, and we saw a huge opportunity there, an upside as well. As the building was so old, pretty much everything needs to be replaced. Um, but it was iconic, as you said. It, everyone knows about it. Everyone um, has read stuff in the press about it. And infamous is probably the word I would use. Um, it's it's the, the the mix of of residents that live there is quite eclectic. It goes right through. It's twenty five percent student, for example. Um, in the tenants because we've got a lot of studios uh, and it's, a, it's such a good, great location right on the on the Victoria line, close to Victoria and St. Pimlico itself. Um, but it, it's it's got barristers, QCs, uh, members of parliament, etc., that live there as well as a lot of um, retired barristers and QCs, for example, doctors. So a real eclectic mix. And, you know, that's good in terms of broadening the, the resident base. You're not dependent on just one particular segment of the market um so again you get that churn through the students um but then you'll get the long-standing retirees that will live there and many you know many of the uh, the residents that have been there for 20 30 40 years um so again you know that's that's nice when you want that stable long-term income coming through um and it was just so iconic and we saw an opportunity to to really improve that building take it forward into 
the 21st century and from an ESG perspective, you know, the, the CapEx works that we're doing there now, very much ESG underpins that. You know, we want this to be, and our target is that it will be the highest certified or graded um, non-new build residential structure uh, in the UK, at least, if not Europe, in terms of what we plan to do, eliminate fossil fuels, get rid of gas, go to electric, solar power, um, air source heat pumps, et cetera, et cetera. We're investing a lot of money into that building to really make it the best in class from an ESG perspective, which knock-on effect is lowers the bills for the residents in terms of their electricity usage, but also a more pleasant environment to live in. Because at the moment, you know, I'll give you an example, the heating is turned on in October and turned off in May, I believe. Um, and then outside of that, there's no heating. You can't regulate it yourself. If it comes on, you know, you're crossing your fingers that the system works when you turn it back on because it's so aged. Um, it's, it's, it's just a fascinating building, fascinating building, but everybody recognises it. So uh, for us, it was, it was just a great opportunity to get uh, a prime zone one building at scale with the common areas and amenity space that you couldn't deliver in today's market um, and really do something special with it and, and show what we could do from an ESG and environmental perspective. It's almost like you read my list of questions because uh, our ESG was next on my list to to ask you about. <laughs> as uh, um, I, I know uh, you you've, uh, you talk about that and you're responsible for that um, in current role. So um, a lot of our audience, you know, is clearly in student and and property sector or though outside and everywhere. But what does you know what does ESG and your ESG strategy look like? on a day-to-day basis, for example, you know, how are you implementing your ESG strategy? And well, I'll ask you that question first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, ESG is a, it's, it's, it's just a moving, moving feast. It's been evolving um, ever since I started at AXA. Um, it's taking more and more prevalence every year, more and more focus, more and more investment. Um, and, you know, it's it's now it's no longer a nice to have. It's it's a must have, um, and we're very serious about that. We've we've signed up to the Paris Agreement. We've um, we're going well. We've been through a process of looking at our, our entire stock, our entire portfolio across all sectors, assessing them for how green they are, uh, and and what works would be needed to get them to a higher EPC level, for example. Lose our reliance on gas. And, and fossil fuels. Um, we've been mapping CREM pathways for, for our assets to see when they become stranded. So that's uh, at what point in the future when the, you know, the one and a half degree target on that graph starts, to, you know, as you're dropping, how far down the line, when do you actually meet that and what, a- what actions can you take to prolong that asset from being obsolete and stranded? Uh, and what are the interventions and when can you do those to to obviously improve the performance and the, the energy consumption and the greenness of that building. So, we, you know, it's a huge task for our asset management teams uh, in general, looking at those, looking at our portfolios and, and really putting into, into buckets in terms of, okay, next year we need to do X number of assets and these are the works that we need to do to those to get them from a D to a B, for example. You know, we really want to get all of our stock 
um, to a B. That's the target, minimum of a B. Um, fortunately, we don't have, apart from a lot of, you know, some, some stock in, in Switzerland uh, that's from the 1930s and 40s in the residential space, um, which is, you know, might be F and G, which we're progressively getting around to, to upgrading. Um, a lot of the, the stock that we have sort of sits around that, that D or better, depending on when we bought it. Um, so a lot of the focus is, is going in on those, you know, right from the basics of, of LEDs, making sure that everything's on an LED. Is everything double glazed or triple glazed? If you're in the Nordics, for example, um, looking at roofs, making sure that they're properly insulated. Uh, obviously, the, the heating systems uh, are, are a key piece of that. But, you know, we're exploring air source, heat pumps, ground source, heat pumps. We've gone through and assessed our residential portfolio, as well as others, offices included, um, for PV, and the possibility of getting photovoltaic uh, onto roofs or onto the sides of buildings. Um, and really, you know, there's a, such a huge focus. We've got a huge ESG team internally that's, that's forever looking at what's coming out. We've got special um, divisions of AXA which are looking at new types of technologies that are coming up, and we're investing in them early on as in almost angel investors um, to to really progress. You know, there's there's a business that we've invested in recently that's that's come up with a new way of, of or a new type of insulation, um, which is biodegradable. Um, the way it's it's sourced from cradle to cradle, as they call it, um, is all organic. Uh, there's no byproduct or waste. It's all carbon neutral, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, those types of businesses, you know, it's a real key focus. And then being a real estate business, you've got an existing stock that does age. You know, the, one of the big things is um, how do you, how can you improve, and a bit like Dolphin Square example I gave earlier, but how do you improve the existing buildings? And now, especially when embodied carbon is now one of the metrics, it, you know, roll back three years, probably not many people knew what embodied carbon was. They were looking at CO2 emissions, but embodied carbon wasn't really on anyone's lips. It is today. And now you've got that real decision to make in terms of do you knock down to build new, which is more efficient, versus the embodied carbon of knocking, you know, that you're effectively creating or emitting by knocking down these buildings and building new versus trying to, make existing structures as efficient as possible, but then potentially you're limiting how high you can go in terms of EPC grading. So it's it's a, it's a really, it's a minefield at the moment, um, which everybody's facing, but it's the right thing to do. And and certainly, you know, we've we've gone full full force behind it. Um, you know, not so long ago, the, the, the management board have, have announced that, you know, their KPIs, there's a lot of KPIs that, They've introduced now, which are around ESG, which filter through to all of us in the business. You know, so it's a it's a serious thing. It's not just a tick box exercise and trying to get the certifications. It's really about you know, and it feeds back to that piece of we're long term investors. We don't generally sell a lot. We 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 acquire and keep for the long term. Well, you can only do that if you've got stock that's good enough to last that long term and not become obsolete or stranded, as I say. Is there any um, countries that are getting their legislation right and better than others? You know, you work in a number, you know, around ESG and in, or you know, are we is it is it just a race that 
that everybody's involved in and, and just going at their own pace? You know, are there certain markets or certain governments that are doing something that perhaps we in the UK could learn from, or could they learn from us, perhaps? Well, interesting you say, you know, everyone goes at their own pace. Um, you can go at your own pace, but the targets are the same for those that have signed up to the Paris Agreement, for example. Um, the deadline is the deadline. Now, what's interesting, and we're seeing, we're starting to see in, in countries, and you know, use France as, the, as, a, as an example, is that they're actually hurrying things along. So um, just recently they brought in, if I think of, of the residential sector specifically, residential and student, they brought in um, a new legislation that basically says that from, I think it's from 2024, anything that's an EPC E or below will not be able to be rented until you perform whatever works are required to get it up to that E level, well, the D ideally. But then they've set targets. So I think it's in two years time, two years after that, then it becomes a D. And then in, by 2030-ish, it becomes a C. So you're being forced into making action. So I think it's not so much the the, the bigger investors such as us that that um, are, are feeling the pressure, even though we are. But if you think of your mums and dads, your private investors, HMO market, for example, they're the ones that, that really have a decision to make in terms of can they invest in those properties because they're, they're going to be unrentable in, in the next few years. So they really have to do something about it. So that, that's really putting pressure on the industry from a, from a, a residential sector perspective. Um, but then there's others that are, are going further. You know, you're seeing more and more now of or hearing more and more about passive house, for example, um, which has been used a lot in, in the Nordics and and um, in Germany. We're starting to see it creep in now into the UK. You'll see, you know, you'll, you'll read in the press that the first passive house student schemes are, are opening up, and but, um, so we're starting to see more and more investors and operators actually using ESG as a differentiator and as a USP. Um, I can think of. Um, an operator, Amro, for example, that are really, really big on on the ESG piece, and they're pushing the passive house for their European student and, and residential business. And others are, are following that path or starting to follow that path because it's the right thing to do. It's a differentiator when you're looking for capital to invest in in your business or in your product to buy your product. Us as investors, we want the best. ESG credential buildings that we can get because short term and even long term that's saving us money in terms of capex and retrofits and, and it, it comes back to that stranded and obsolete piece again you know the further you can push that out the less investment you need to make in in those buildings to get them up to standard now the difficulty is that the goalposts will keep moving on this and and therefore you'll have to keep redoing your creme pathways and keep reanalyzing the state of your portfolios. And, you know, we're just hearing about rack over the last few few weeks uh, in schools. Well, what's the next material that could potentially have the same, you know, blow up in the same way in terms of being a mass media story? Um, you just don't know. So I think you know, obstacles will come along down the line, but I think your thinking needs to be that you're doing it to protect your portfolio and you're doing it for the right reasons um, and it's not a short-term, it has to be a long-term play 
and you really need to look at the business holistically and invest in those assets that, that need to be improved. Moving on to um, student accommodation. So we sit here in early, mid-September. Um, how has this year gone in student accommodation? You know, how has, how has it been? Very strong, very strong uh, everywhere um, for different reasons. I think uh, and the reason I say that is if I, if I look at Australia, Australia suffered massively during COVID um, because they literally shut the borders down. No one could come in or go out. Occupancy was extremely low. Uh, and even when uh, the rest of the world opened up, Australia was a lot slower to, to open up. Um, so therefore, occupancy was... Um, was slow to come back, um, and then you throw into the mix um, the, prime, the then prime minister and, and the China relations. You know, eighty-five percent of the students um, that live in PBSA are, are internationals, and a bulk of those come from from China, Japan, etc. Um, so that had a big impact. So that that was quite slow to come back during COVID, but this year it's 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 come back. I mean, it's it's full. You'll read in the press that there's facing the same issues that they are everywhere else, you know, like Durham, for example, where people were queuing for, for overnight for, for student accommodation. It, it's, it's really come back. And, you know, occupancy levels, I would be surprised if, if everyone doesn't quote that they are at their highest or, or at least pre-COVID, you know, same levels. Um, and, and they're seeing decent rental growth because the demand is just so strong. And obviously the supply is just not, just not come through because we're feeling it from obviously the COVID years and, and effectively the end of, of construction as we knew it. Uh, and now with the increased cost of construction, it's making it harder. So occupancy levels are very strong. Uh, top line performance is strong. Uh, OPEX has been hit. Um, you know, obviously you could, you'll see in the industry that a lot of people will unite, for example, is an easy example that will hedge their utility costs for, 12, two years, three years, whatever it may be. Well, a bit like um, now when we're looking at financing and interest rates and a lot of investors or developers have, have been financing and suddenly those financing need to be refinanced effectively and the rates are now jumped from 2% to, to 6%. It's the same with utilities and you're suddenly seeing that you, what you were getting a very good deal before, suddenly we're seeing 50, 100% increases in utility costs. Um and then the question then is how do you how do you absorb that? How do you how long do you hedge for, hoping that the rates will come back down? How much can you put into the rents? How much can you take on board yourself? And that plays in again with with capex works and ESG works in terms of how can you reduce your overall consumption to to not be as reliant and, and not be as affected. So I think the opex side has been hit uh, certainly in utilities and staffing as well because again breaks it. Has had an impact. We're not seeing as many people. You know, it's very well documented in terms of um, the hospitality industry post COVID was suffering. Well, where were student accommodation providers drawing from? A lot of them came from the the, the hotel and, and restaurant businesses and hospitality sector. And again, if that's drying up, it's it's putting pressure on on salaries. And we've seen that you know there's been some decent wage growth. Um, across the country, obviously, couple that with um, the London living wage that's that's increased as well. So you're you're, you're getting a lot of pressure on the OPEX side, um, but thankfully, you know the rents are holding up and and the occupancy is is very very high. 
to, to counterbalance that. And that's also having an impact on, on valuations, which are keeping flat. And, you know, the, the, the good thing about student, in my view, is that from an investable asset class, when you look at where the yields are now and how much they've uh, gone out since, since COVID versus other sectors, you know, from my perspective, PBSA has been the least hit. Uh, and it looks very, very attractive because you have the least regulation. You can pass on uh, a lot of the cost through the rental increases. You've got the demand supply imbalance. Um, and it, it even, and, and like I said, with the less rental regulation in place other than Dublin, uh, it looks like a very, very investable asset class at the moment. The issue is stock in construction and, uh, and finding. And obviously, like, you know, you want to keep rents as affordable for students as you can exactly how how do you stack that up because you know clearly yeah i give my opinion you know we were talking about student accommodation going back 12 years i think the investment in the sector has clearly been a good thing you know the the conditions students now live in are far superior to the in most cases as, as what they did back then and we want to see that improvement throughout the sector in the stock in making them more sustainable and everything else. But that obviously comes at a cost. Capital costs money and invest, you know, investing in these assets costs money. How do you stack that up against keeping rents fair? And you know, what how does that work in yeah. practical terms? So I touched on it before in terms of our strategy is certainly to have a diversified portfolio, not play too much in the premium end, um, into, just because of that very fact in how sustainable is it, um, and trying to, to play more in the medium, the middle sort of segment and the affordable segment. The, the issue that everyone faces is that when you're developing from scratch, there is a minimum cost. You can't get away from it it will cost you a minimum of x to build um and i was on a, a webinar early this morning and jll were quoting that in the regions so outside of london to make a scheme stack up a standard scheme middle of the road scheme stack up you you have to charge a minimum of 200 pounds a week rent well wow. so you will go well that's not affordable or how can that be classed as affordable well, for a lot of people, it's not. Um, you know, we, we used to, you know, I, I remember Sheffield, for example, was always around 120 a week and Newcastle was always around 100 a week. And, you know, you could pretty much pick the city and, tell, and, and you, could, you, could, you could name the rates. Um, now everything's just, just gone up. And when, you're, when you can only build and you have to sell or rent, rent rooms for a minimum of 200 a week, instantly that's your bar so any anything else that you do on top and, and this is a you know a big question that the industry faces is well first of all is it the pbsa sector or investors in pbsa is it their job to provide affordable um because traditionally it was the universities that offered the affordable twin shares suddenly you know pbsa turns into a, a different offering you're getting communal spaces you're getting podcast rooms you're getting cinema rooms etc you're getting all of this additional extra 
then couple onto that the the mental health, the well-being, the pastoral care, the extension of the university itself. You're offering so much more. That's got to cost more than the metal beds that you had in a university with a sink in your in your bedroom and sharing with twenty people. Um, so there, there's a natural sort of cost difference to that. Now, different investors will look at things differently, and like I said, you know we want to keep a or to have a, a diversified portfolio where we can attract as many people as possible and and, and make it as reasonably priced as possible and and i think that's one of the beauties of us being a long-term investor and, and again i hark back to that sweat the asset comment we don't need to sweat the assets we need to give we need to be able to provide a good sensible return to our investors who are looking for that stable income stream over that long-term period and not looking for these peaks and troughs because nobody likes that but everyone likes consistency um we're not private equity firms that are trying to build, stabilise and sell at the highest price and move on to the next one. This is about keeping those assets. And if, you, if you're starting, you know, I mentioned it before, if you start your pricing up up here, is that sustainable or are you just going to be taking a hit? And that's your credibility that comes into question. You, know, how do you, you can't underwrite negative growth. Um, otherwise, what's the point in doing the deal? So you've got to keep it sensible. And, I, you know, my... Not fear, but something in the back of my mind and, you know, I'm keeping a close eye on is we've seen reg rental regulation creep in into, into residential. We've seen it in Dublin, albeit I don't agree 100% with how they've, they've applied it. When and if it comes into student, you know, that could have a big impact as well. And I think that will then shift people's mindsets into what type of product are they building and, and potentially where are they building as well? Because at the moment it's trying to find the prime site in the middle of the city, close to all the bars and what have you. Could we see more uh, peripheral schemes being opened up with a shuttle service from, from, the, from the accommodation into town, for example, or that uh, the university provides um, a, a shuttle service? I don't know, but it's, it's increasingly difficult to build in cities because you don't have the available space. Uh, it's increasingly expensive to build in cities. Uh, it's increasingly expensive to uh, staff, in, uh, find staff and, and pay staff in, in those big cities. So whilst the future is very bright for PDSA, there are some, some caveats that we need to be mindful of. And ultimately, there, there has to be a ceiling that, for what people are prepared to pay for. And... You can either pivot and say, well, we'll just concentrate on international students because we know that they'll pay because they've got the cash and the rise of the middle classes and all of these new nations that are coming forward. You know, it used to be China. Now we're seeing um, African uh, nations coming through, Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam, India. But even the Indians are very price sensitive and they need somewhere to stay. So I think it very much comes down to what is the strategy for your business and, and ours is very much dabbling in that premium end where it's where we feel it's it's uh, warranted but really trying to provide something that's affordable for everyone and hence why we change the way we look at affordability ratios and the metrics that we that we use to to really identify whether a scheme is for the long term or not okay so we've We've got into some detail there around resi, ESG, <laughs> student accommodation, the markets. It's um, it, we've explored that. Let's um, 
let's talk about you, Joe. So where did you grow up? Where did I grow up? Uh, so I grew, I grew up in the UK. Um, so my, as you probably tell by my surname, it's Italian. Um, so my parents are Italian from Rome and uh, dad moved here in, I think it was 1969, after moving around through Germany and Switzerland before ending up in the UK. Um, and uh, I, so I grew up in, in uh, a lovely little place called Kingston upon Thames when I was younger. Um, great place, very, you know, very green. You've got the parks, uh, got the river, um, but you're close enough into town. Uh, and I, yeah, went to school here um, and then went to university before going to work in France for in Nice for a couple of years uh, and obviously the Australia story I've told you so uh, my my accent is it's probably a bit mixed now which I would say I was, I was very much English and you wouldn't tell that I was Italian but I'm sure you've detected the odd twang of the Aussie that comes through and I, I don't know how that's still stuck but uh, every now and then the odd Aussie twang but it's, it's quite it's quite funny actually whenever I because uh, I always try and talk so I go to our Italian office or, or to look at Italian schemes or I go to Spain or whatever, or France, I'll try and speak the language. I really, I said before, I really love languages and, and want to practice them as much as possible. Um, and people always question, they always ask me, where are you from? Because I haven't got the typical English accent trying to speak a foreign language. Um, I, it's a real sort of mix. Uh, and they're like, well, you're not English, you know, but your English is so good. So, and you don't have an accent from a particular country. Where are you from? Um, so it's always it's always a, a guessing game for people where I'm from. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm UK based. Uh, however, like I said, lived in Australia, really enjoyed it. I'm a citizen, got three passports. Wow. So I've got the UK, <laughs> Italian, and, uh, and Australian. So. Other than the the US, I can pretty much go wherever I want. I think, and uh, you know, I wouldn't have it any other way. I think it's it's really important that you have that experience across other countries. And I've learned so much that I can apply, and and you can see trends and things that happen in one country and apply them to another. Or um, you know, it's I just I, I love it. I love I love traveling around and, and just seeing other cultures and, and meeting other people. I say, where does that love of languages come from? Is that from you know because you came from Italian parents that I assume spoke Italian yeah. and English at home. Is that, do you think that's where your love of languages came from? Uh, I think so. I mean, my, my first, my mother tongue is Italian, so I didn't speak English at all until I went to school. Um, my parents, well, my dad did broken English. My mum didn't speak English at all. Um, so Italian was our first language. Um, and like I said, I went to school and it was only when I got to secondary school that um, we started getting into languages. I was learning French and German, uh, and I found languages quite easy to pick up. Uh, German, not so much. German was, was a lot harder because it wasn't like the normal Latin-stemmed languages of French, Spanish, and Italian. And I'd heard my mum speaking Spanish, and she'd never learnt it at school, but she picked it up um, herself through her friends talking and and I, I do the same. I sort of, you know, my ear picks it up. So whilst, you know, I'm not fluent in Spanish by any means, but I can get the gist of what well, I can do more than get the gist of things. But I think having that Italian stem helped me to learn French and Spanish and pick up things a lot quicker. 
Uh, plus, you know, obviously I did it at school and then at university. I did international business and languages. I uh, lived in France and that was, that was, that was eye-opening because I, I was, I was, you know, getting pretty good grades in, 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 in French at, at uni and at school. It wasn't until I went to, to France and I lived in Nice, um, which I thoroughly recommend to anyone to live. It's a fantastic place. Um, and it wasn't until I got there and I started speaking French and, you know, all confident and cocky and going, oh, you know, I know what, I was 20, 21, 22 at the time. And uh, everyone said to me, how are you talking? You know, the French people were saying, how are you talking? I said, well, I'm talking French. And they're like, no, you're literally talking textbook French. Nobody speaks like that. So throughout the, my time there, I had to unlearn almost everything I'd learned to then pick up how actually people do talk. And it's not just reading a word out of a textbook, you know, that type of thing. And um, that, you know, that was, there's nothing better for you than actually immersing yourself in living in that country and learning that language and talking to people where you, you really pick it up. And um, I just really enjoy languages and I regret that I haven't, you know, I'd love to learn something like Japanese or, or Mandarin, um, but I'm sure I'd find those extremely difficult because they're just not from the Latin stem. But, um, it's, yeah, I just always loved them, always loved them, and I'll always try and, and speak, um, even if it's terrible, I'll always try and say a few words in, uh, in whoever I'm talking to his language. Okay, so now we've come to the quick bar round questions. So if you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? other than world peace um i would say from a professional perspective i would encourage employers who are recruiting for roles to to just step out of their traditional field of view you know i think i, I draw my own experience here of, of going to axa and they very much recruited out of the mold when they got me i don't think they, they fully understood what they were getting but uh uh, I've, made, I've made it to five years, so I must be doing something right. But I think, you know, I, I mentioned before that traditionally in, in PBSA, for example, you recruit from hospitality. Well, I think we should, in, in today's day and age, I think we should be looking outside of that because everyone can bring something different to the business. And my own experience is testament to that, that I can bring something different to an organisation um, that others wouldn't have had experience to. And I think that that applies to everywhere. And I think don't just pigeonhole people and look for a certain type or characteristic or what have you. I think be more open in terms of your recruitment and get these wide, diverse cultural experiences, personal experiences, career experiences. You know, I think it's it's even more pertinent now with everything that's going on in the diversity and inclusion piece. You know, it, it really taps into that. And I think from an employer perspective, just just open that field of view to to a wider pool of talent that's out there that might not necessarily on paper have the skills that you want you know I, I always use the example that some one of my friends always uses of, I did a geography degree and now I'm I'm doing um, quantum physics in in a, in a lab somewhere you know it's could be more far removed but it's it's not always what's on on the paper and what you've studied at university that's the most pertinent it's the it's the skills you've learned along the way and the experience that you can bring so I think that's my that's my takeaway. Okay. And what advice would you give to someone who wants to change their direction but doesn't know where to start? I think, firstly, you've got to ask yourself the question of what do you enjoy doing? You know, what, are, what, are, what is your skill set? 
and how can those skills be applied to the industry or role that you're targeting and want to, to transition into? Then, you know, do you need additional training or education? Um, but one thing that I found really useful, uh, and I've been on the receiving end as well as on the on the on the giving end, is is having a mentor or mentors. You know, I've I've kept in touch with a lot of, of old colleagues and bosses that I've worked with in the past who I've learned a hell of a lot from, who've opened my eyes to different things uh, along my career. Um, and if you look on my LinkedIn, you'll see that I've got you know, over a thousand, fifteen hundred connections. I think networking is so important. Speaking to people in that industry that that you're looking to get into, picking their brains getting in a mentoring program. I'm on the, the ULI um, Young Leaders or Mentor Program. I've been for four years where I mentor different groups each year of people from different parts of the sector and the, and the real estate industry um, that I may not have experience in, such as in credit, for example, uh, and the banking side or finance side. But I, I'm a firm believer that, you know, pass it on. Effectively, I've had some really good as well as some not so good managers in the past and, and, and colleagues, um, but and you learn from both. But if you can impart that and and if you can find yourself a mentor or mentors, really use them. Ask them the questions. How do I get into this sector that I'm really interested in? Um, what do I need? How can I make myself more attractive or marketable? And again, that ties in with my previous answer in terms of recruiters and businesses opening their eyes a bit, casting their nets a bit wider. So ask yourself why you want to do it, what your skill sets are, is, and do you need additional help in terms of training professionally, professional trainer education, and, and talk to people. Find a mentor, talk to other colleagues, other people in the industry, go to events and mingle and talk to people that you've never spoken to before but they're in that industry and just really pick their brains and you'll find that most people are happy to to talk to you and if you're really lucky then some of them will actually dedicate some of their time to you know give you an hour or so to have a chat through and, and talk to you about the industry that you're looking to get into i think that's great advice and finally if you were to recommend a guest for me to speak to you on on the podcast who would it be I think Kevin's given you the, the longest list of all. So who's, <laughs> who's left on the list to talk to? Um, I th I'd have to think. Well, who would I pick? I would pick. Let me pick Eri from um, from Collegiate. Uh, he, I think he would be very interesting. He's he's you know, broached from that moved from that third party UK into Europe. Um, Really nice guy who will have lots of good stories to tell you about PBSA. I think he'd be an interesting character to talk to. Um, I think on the operational side, James Brandt from CRM Students would be a good one to talk to. Um, he's a really good guy as well. Uh, and if you want to touch on the, on the development and, and new markets piece, then maybe Aaron Bailey from uh, from GSA would be a good one to talk to as well. He's seen quite a bit, and he was at Unite many moons ago as well. As you, I'm sure you you know that uh, the student industry is quite incestuous, and <laughs> everyone knows everyone, and everyone moves around. Um, 
they would they would probably be my best. And then I'd, I'd second Kevin's recommendation of Paddy Allen as well. Probably is he's uh, he's a great guy and knows his stuff. Well, hopefully, uh, and Paddy's joining me very soon uh, on an episode. But Brilliant. but yeah, we'll certainly uh, reach out to the others and um, and try and get some more episodes recorded. Um, Joe, I mean it's we'd never actually met before before uh recording this episode after you were uh, uh nominated by kevin um i've really enjoyed today's conversation i think getting your take on both resi and pbsa from you know there's not many people that have done a summer turnaround and then head up a massive resi and student <laughs> portfolio in the in the same career you either go down one path or the other so um so i think uh, your perspective on on the industry is, is quite unique um so hopefully and also you know advice about you know making filling the gaps in your cv i think is really great practical advice for people to people to um to look at look at themselves and look at where where they're perhaps missing some things and work on those or or find roles so um i've really enjoyed it thanks very much my pleasure thanks for having me really appreciate it